0: Amen. Well, good morning, and I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we are going to continue our Christmas series this morning. And I'll begin, I'll, uh, begin this morning by reading for us verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to focus on verses 7 and 8 this morning. So, Philippians chapter 2. And I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 980 and 981. So Philippians chapter 2, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. This is God's Word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time of year where we are able to set aside several weeks to give thought and reflection, consideration to the birth of Your Son the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. We thank you for the salvation and redemption that you have granted to this world through him. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider how Paul lays out for us here the birth of the Lord Jesus and his work of redemption, we pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding and wisdom We pray, Father, that we would be changed and transformed, and we pray, Father, that we would walk in the humility even that Paul speaks of here in these verses. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Well, our Christmas series this year is entitled, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. And of course, Him refers to the Lord Jesus, but all of us have to answer the question, Who is Jesus? And this is a vital question, one because of the significance of who Jesus is and then also because of the widespread misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Francis Schaeffer, who was a Christian apologist, once wrote, quote, "I have come to the point where when I hear the word Jesus, which means so much to me because of the person of the historic Jesus and his work," I listen carefully because I have with sorrow become more afraid of the word Jesus than almost any other word in the modern world. Increasingly, over the past few years, the word Jesus, separated from the content of Scripture, has been the enemy of the Jesus of history, the Jesus who died and rose and is coming again and who is the eternal Son of God, end of quote. What Schaefer is saying there is he's scared of the word Jesus because so oftentimes it's filled with content that's contrary to the scriptures, contrary to what the Bible says about who Jesus is. This is the reason last week we spoke about the importance of developing an understanding of Jesus that is from above rather than from below. That we wouldn't come to understand Jesus and perceive Jesus by our own understanding from below, our own opinions and thoughts and ideas, but rather from above as God has revealed Jesus to us in His Word. Of course, one of the ways that we show that we love someone is that we give attention and care to get to know them, to know who they truly are. So, for example, if someone were to ask about a man's wife He couldn't recall her birthday. He couldn't recall their wedding anniversary. Some of you guys might be thinking, well, that's not too bad. I kind of have a hard time with that sometimes. But then you ask about her her appearance and they can't recall her height. Maybe they miss her height by like four or five inches. And they miss her weight by like 30 or 40 pounds, more than what she actually weighs. They can't tell you these basic concepts or ideas, facts about who she is. They can't tell you the color of her hair, the color of her eyes. Of course, that's an extreme example, but if a man was so clueless about these basic facts related to who his wife is, then of course it would call into question the sincerity of his love for her. And you see, my friends, without sincere attention and care, we can also miss out badly on who Jesus is. As I stated last week, God does not want us to misidentify Jesus. God doesn't want us to miss out on who Jesus is. And that's why He sent Jesus into the world. And that's why He's revealed to us in His Word who Jesus is. He's revealed to us His life and His death and His resurrection. Last week as we were looking at Philippians chapter 2 we gave special attention to the divinity of Jesus but this week we're going to focus on the humanity of Jesus. And in our society we are probably most we probably hear people most often deny the divinity of Jesus the idea that Jesus is God. But it's also fo- possible for folks to diminish or outright deny the humanity of Jesus. In fact, in the early days of the Christian church, there was actually a group of people known as the Docetist. The Docetist. Uh, Docetist is derived from the Greek word doke, which means to seem. And so the idea was that Jesus was divine and He only seemed to be human. Now, as spiritual as that may sound, as lofty and exalted as that may sound, that Jesus is divine but He's not really human... That, in fact, is a profound misunderstanding and misrepresentation of the biblical Jesus. Because as we stated before, my friends, this is the truth that we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate that Jesus is God in the flesh. That in the birth of Jesus Christ, God the Son took on flesh and He dwelt among us as a man in full humanity. In fact, you might hear people say that at Christmas we celebrate the Incarnation. And the word Incarnation is a Latin word which means enfleshment. The idea is that the eternal Son of God took on flesh. He was infleshed, and He became a man. Therefore, I want us to consider this morning three truths regarding the humanity of Jesus from our passage. Three truths regarding the humanity of Jesus. I'll give them to you up front, and then we'll walk through them as we go through our time together this morning. First, Jesus took the form of a servant. Secondly, Jesus was born in the likeness of man. And third, Jesus was found in human form. So first, look there in verse 7. Jesus took the form of a servant. Verse 7 But he emptied himself, and we're going to consider that phrase more next week, by taking the form of a servant. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember that we gave attention to the phrase in verse 6 though he was in the form of God. And now we see this word form again in verse 7. The word translated here in verse 6 and 7 as form is the Greek word morphe. And we said last week that this word morphe refers to, quote, that form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it, end of quote. And because this word is used twice in just two verses back to back, we noted that whatever it means that Jesus is in the form of God is analogous to what it means that Jesus was in the form of a servant, the form of a man, because these are parallel expressions. So what does it mean that Jesus is in the form of God? Well, whatever is true regarding the essential qualities, the essential character of God, is true regarding Jesus because He truly and fully expressed what it means to be God. That's Jesus' divinity. What does it mean that Jesus is in the form of a servant? Well, whatever is true regarding the essential qualities and character of a servant are true regarding Jesus because he truly and fully expressed what it means to be a servant, what it means to be a man. That's Jesus' humanity. Dr. Stephen Wellham, in a book that he wrote entitled God the Incarnate Son, this is how he puts it, quote, So in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we can now see that Paul uses morphe, that's this word form, to affirm the full deity and humanity of Christ. The pre-incarnational person of Christ has always existed as the full expression of what it means to be God, and the same divine person became incarnate so that Jesus now also exists as the full expression of what it means to be a man-servant. Now, historically, the church has spoken of this in terms of one person and two natures. One person and two natures. Jesus is the one person who possesses two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. I'm going to read for you a portion of the Chalcedonian Creed. It's an ancient creed of the Christian church that addresses this issue. Now, it's a little thick because it's a theological creed, but there's essential truths here that I want us to hear and consider. Listen to how the Chalcedonian Creed expresses this truth. Quote, "...we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ." The same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man. Of a rational soul and body, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to manhood. So equal with the Father in divinity, in deity, fully God, and also sharing with us in our humanity fully and completely. It goes on to say later on in the Creed, One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. So there's that idea of one person. To be acknowledged in two natures, divine and human. Those natures being without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So one person, two natures. One person, Jesus Christ, who possessed two natures, He was God and man, divine and human nature. In this way, Jesus is the God-man. Another way we could say this is that Jesus is fully 100% divine and fully 100% man. He is fully God and fully man. Now, that's mysterious to us, right? How can He be 100% divine and 100% human? But this is the truth that we see in Scripture. He is not part God and part man. He is not sometimes God and sometimes man. He is not mostly God and a little bit of man. He is not mostly man and part God. He is fully God and fully man. He is the God-man, Jesus Christ. One night this week, we were sitting around dinner table. It's oftentimes hard in our family to sit around the dinner table. Um, Just with all the busyness of everything going on and practices and so forth, we were sitting around the dinner table one evening and we took some time to read the passage for this week and we were having a little bit of discussion about it. And one of our children asked a great question. They asked, Now that Jesus is in heaven, does he still have a body? And underlying that question is also this question Now that Jesus is in heaven, is he still a man? Did his humanity end after his resurrection? In in this sense, was his humanity kind of a temporary assignment? Took on humanity for a time, but then after he completed the work of redemption on earth, he put his humanity aside, and now he's no longer a man. The answer to that question is, Jesus does still have a body. He has a resurrected body. And Jesus is still fully God and fully man. And He will always be. He will always and forever be the God-man. In fact, now Jesus in His humanity and with His resurrected body presents us with an example of what we will one day become. For one day we will be like Him. Of course we will not be God, but in our humanity we will be like Him. We will be given resurrected bodies like His, and we will be perfected so that in the fullness of all our humanity, we will live, and we will play, and we will worship to the glory of God. Jesus took on the form of a servant. He was fully man. Second truth regarding the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was born in the likeness of men. Look there in verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now that word there, translated likeness, a fuller definition, is, quote, a state of having common experiences, and it can be translated likeness, or it is, quote, a state of being similar in appearance, and can be translated image or Form. One revered uh, kind of Greek dictionary observes here, referring to what Paul states here in verse 7 in terms of Jesus being in the likeness of men, he says, quote, or this dictionary uh, observes, quote, "...in the light of what Paul says about Jesus in general, it is probably that he uses our word to bring out both that Jesus in his earthly career was similar to sinful humans," and yet not totally like them, end of quote. So in what way, based upon what's said here, in what way was Jesus similar to sinful humans, and yet not totally like them? Well, He was like us in our human nature. He was fully human, but He was unlike us in our sinful nature. Many of you might remember that uh, this last year we worked through Romans chapter 6 through 8. And in Romans chapter 8 verse 3, Paul declares, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness, and that's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2, in the likeness of sinful flesh. So, so that's, that's, that's the idea of Christmas, right? That's the incarnation. God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And at that time, we noted that Paul does not say that God sent His own Son in sinful flesh, but rather in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because to say that He sent His Son in sinful flesh might imply that Jesus the Incarnate Son was Himself sinful. But rather, Paul says, he sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, which both preserves Jesus' full humanity as well as his sinless perfection. We've probably all heard at some point someone use the expression, to err is human. And perhaps from that, we might conclude that an essential quality of being human is to sin. And it is true since the fall of Adam and Eve that all of us, as men and women, we do, in fact, sin. But that was not always the case. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve never sinned. In fact, to be fully and truly human as God intended us to be is to never sin but to always love and trust God, to live joyfully and willingly under His divine rule and to enjoy His fellowship. This is what it means to be truly and fully human as God created us to be. And in this sense, Jesus is the only man who has fully experienced what it means to be truly human as God has intended us to be. So Jesus is fully human but he has not fallen. He is fully man, but he is not sinful. Again, going back to the Chalcedonian Creed, he is in all things like unto us, yet without sin. This distinction is beautifully illustrated, actually, and communicated in the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, we read, And the angel, this is Gabriel, he's speaking to Mary, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God." And the words of the angel Gabriel here recall actually the Bible's description of creation in Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis chapter 1, what we find there is that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters as God begins the work of creation. And we are told over and over again that as God begins to create, that what He creates is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. good. And then we read in Luke chapter 1 that Mary is told that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her and that the baby that will be created in her womb will be called holy. Do you see the similarities between the two? In Genesis, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters of the sea and God creates the world, including Adam, and declares him to be good. And in Luke chapter 1, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and creates a child in her womb and declares Him to be holy. On both occasions, we have the Spirit of God hovering. We have the Spirit of God overshadowing. We have the Spirit of God creating. And God specifically creating a man. And both men are created without sin. They are created good. They are created holy. So, Jesus is like us in that he is fully human, and yet at the same time, he is without sin. Stephen Wellham, going back to his book entitled God the Incarnate Son, he has an excellent section on the sinlessness of Christ. And Wellham points out that Jesus himself, Jesus himself understood himself to be sinless. Listen to what he says, quote, Jesus recognized sin in others but never in himself. He showed no consciousness of sin, never prayed for his own forgiveness, and commanded others to repent of their sins without ever repenting himself. Jesus even challenged his enemies to find fault in him. Which of you convicts me of sin? John 8:46. Moreover Jesus claimed to have kept all of his father's commands John 15:10 and to have fulfilled all righteousness Matthew 3:15 Jesus saw himself as neither a sinner by nature nor a sinner by transgression end of quote And this then is verified throughout the rest of scripture this is consistent with the rest of the testimony of scripture In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the author of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In addition, listen to the testimony of those who spent three years with the Lord Jesus, doing life with Him and doing ministry with Him, observed Him day after day after day. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he was a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter says again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Paul affirms the same truth when he declares in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake He, that is God the Father, made Him, that is God the Son, made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is fully human, but He has not fallen. Jesus is fully man, but He is not sinful. According to the Chalcedonian Creed, He is in all things like unto us. He came in the likeness of man, yet he was without sin. Third, Jesus was found in human form. So we've seen Jesus took the form of a servant. Jesus was born in the likeness of men. And then third, Jesus was found in human form. This is in verse 8, but let's start in verse 7 again. Verse 7 says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here it is, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we've already talked about this word form. It's actually used in verse 6. It's used in verse 7. And we said that the word in verse 6 and 7 is the word morphe in the original. This word here in verse 8 is actually a different word. It's the word schema. It's a little bit of a different word here. But notice that Paul states here in verse 8 that Jesus was found in human form. The word translated found here means in this context, quote, "...to discover intellectually through reflection." Observation, examination, or investigation. It can be translated to find or to discover. This seems to be the idea that others observed the Lord Jesus, they observed His life, they observed His dealings, and they concluded they found Him to be in human form. In other words, He was the real deal. He was not a fake He wasn't a spirit that went in and out of being human, in and out of being a man. Sometimes he was a man, sometimes he wasn't. I don't know if you've ever read any Greek mythology, but the the Greek gods, they would have this ability in the myths to go in and out of being various men and women. That was not the case with the Lord Jesus. He was fully a man. And so this means that they observed that when Jesus hadn't eaten for a while, he was hungry. When he hadn't slept, he got tired. When he was sad, he cried. When he was hit, he bled. When Jesus was violently crucified, he experienced real agony and physical pain. He was, in this sense, found in human form. They observed that he experienced the reality of humanity. And they verified His humanity. So notice the distinction here. In verse 7, Jesus was born in the likeness of men. In verse 8, he is found in human form. So, as one commentator points out, verse 7 describes Jesus' historical entrance into humanity. He was born in the likeness of men. Verse 8 speaks of the empirical evidence of his humanity. He was found to be in human form. Others observed it, and they verified it. But notice here on the whole the stress on Jesus' humanity. In verse 7, He took the form of a servant. Verse 7 again, He was born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, He was found in human form. Now There are distinctions between each of these three phrases, and we've highlighted some of them, and we'll talk about this some more next week. But, but we also have to note that these three phrases are somewhat redundant, right? In many ways, Jesus, or, or Paul here is stating the same truth about Jesus over and over and over again. Why is there here that such a stress, and really in the rest of Scripture, why is there such a stress on the humanity of Jesus? This was a famous question that Anselm of Canterbury asked in the 11th century. In the Latin, the question was, Cur Deus Homo? translated, why did God become a man? Why did God become a man? There are any number of answers we could give to that question, but perhaps no verse, no single verse in all the Bible so clearly answers this question as Hebrews chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 You might want to turn there. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, the author of Hebrews writes these words. Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now notice here in these verses that the author of Hebrews speaks of the necessity of Jesus' incarnation. And the necessity of His incarnation to both be a high priest for us in His high priestly ministry and for His atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, Jesus became a man in order that He might care for us fully and in order that He might save us completely. Notice how He speaks of the necessity of Jesus' incarnation. He says He had, it was necessary, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. This is the necessity that Jesus be fully like us in our humanity. And why? The author tells us. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Of course, in verse 18, he goes on to explain this high priestly ministry when he writes, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We all know that according to the Christmas carol, Christmas is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. And it is a wonderful time for many of us. But I also know that for some of us, this is not true. If you've recently lost a loved one or You're estranged from your family or you find yourself all alone during the Christmas season. This could be a very difficult and painful time of year. And do you see what the author of Hebrews is saying here? Jesus became a man so that He might identify with you in your suffering and so that He might minister to you in your need. Charles Spurgeon once said, quote, There is no learning sympathy except by suffering. It cannot be studied from a book. It must be written on the heart. Let me read that again. There is no learning sympathy except by suffering. It cannot be studied from a book. It must be written on the heart. And listen, my friends. Jesus didn't just learn about suffering by reading a book. In addition to that, Jesus does not simply know about suffering by virtue of his omniscience. Do you know what that word means, omniscience? Omniscience is the characteristic of knowing all things fully, exhaustively, completely. And Jesus in his divinity knows all things. In fact, Jesus in his divinity knows every single occasion of suffering that will ever take place in the history of the world. But Jesus does not simply know suffering cognitively, intellectually, by virtue of His omniscience. Jesus knows suffering, the reality and the extremities of suffering, by His experience. Because He became a man because He dwelt among us, because He lived in a sinful and broken world, and because He subjected Himself to the trials and the hardships and the temptations and the sufferings of this world. And it is out of this personal knowledge and experience that now Jesus is present with us. He comes alongside us. He ministers to us. He is truly sympathetic with us, empathizes with us, And He meets us in our need. It is Jesus' humanity that makes His high priestly ministry real and authentic and near. But there's another reason why Jesus' incarnation was necessary. The author of Hebrews tells us here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, it was necessary that He become like us in every way to make, here's what He says in verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus became a man... Because as sinners who deserve God's wrath and judgment, we needed a Savior. Jesus became a man because we needed Him to. As the author of Hebrews states here, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Do you know what that word propitiation means? It means to satisfy the wrath of of God and this is what happened at the cross when Jesus died on the cross he bore on himself the wrath of God the judgment of God that we deserve for our sins so that there would be no more wrath or judgment for us to bear And if Jesus had remained the eternal Son of God without becoming a man, without living a life of righteousness, without identifying with us in our humanity, without taking upon Himself a physical body, then He could not have died on the cross the death that we deserve. And He could not have satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus became a man so that He might be the once for all, all all-sufficient atoning sacrifice for all those who would believe and trust in Him. So Jesus took the form of a servant. Jesus was born in the likeness of men, and Jesus was found in human form. Last week I pointed out that we live in a secular society, by and large, a society that feels uncomfortable with the miraculous and oftentimes outright denies the supernatural. And as a result, folks in our society are more inclined to affirm and emphasize the humanity of Jesus and to deny the deity of Jesus, that He is God. But that's not true of all cultures. In fact, in some cultures that are highly religious where there is the worship of many gods and many idols, they might be more inclined to emphasize the divinity of Jesus and to de-emphasize or downplay the humanity of Jesus. In fact, Kyle, who is one of our members here at Crawford Avenue, he is serving as a missionary in Africa, but was recently on an assignment in South Asia, And Kyle is a Bible translator. And he was working recently with some Christian leaders in South Asia, and they were translating 1 Timothy. And these Christian leaders who love the Lord, who they themselves have good and sound theology, they came across a passage in which they were having some difficulty. The text was 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. The text reads this way, "...for there is one God..." And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And originally the team wanted to translate that last phrase there, the man Christ Jesus, they wanted to translate it as Christ Jesus who was born in human form. Now, that's not necessarily a wrong statement. In fact, it sounds somewhat similar to what Paul's saying here in Philippians chapter 2, but it's not actually what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5. And so they began to discuss this and talk about it, and it became more and more clear as they discussed it that these Christian leaders, one, they wanted to protect the idea of Jesus' divinity, that He is in fact God, so they wanted to do that. But they also were concerned that there were those in their area who opposed Christianity who might use a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5 to appeal to weak and younger Christians and churches in the area to convince them that they should renounce the worship of Jesus who is just a man and return to the real gods. And so they had to have a discussion about this. And in the end, the translation team happily acknowledged the importance of Jesus' full divinity and his full humanity, and they translated the text as written, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, why is this so important? Well, if you want to know why it's so important, You can just keep reading, and Paul tells us why. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And why is that important, Paul? Who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's why it's important. Because that ransom is only possible if Jesus is, in fact, fully God and fully man, fully divine and fully human, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us? Do you believe that He is fully God and fully man? And as the God-man, He went to the cross and died to satisfy the wrath of God For your sins. Oh, my friends, let me encourage you turn from your sins, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the God man, yield your life to him as Lord, and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word, and we thank You for the gift of Your Son, the Lord Jesus, who was, in fact, willing to renounce His divine prerogatives and to yield Himself to becoming a man, to take on flesh and to dwell among us so that He might die and ransom us and redeem us from our sins and satisfy Your wrath and judgment against us. We thank You, Father, for His full divinity and humanity, we thank you that he is the God-man who rules and reigns now at your right hand and will rule and reign forever. Father, we pray that as we reflect upon who Jesus is during this Christmas season, that we truly would be moved to worship and to awe, that we truly would adore him. And Father, we pray that this Christmas season would be a time of worship. As our hearts rejoice in who he is and as we share Him with others. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen.